The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Things get pretty grim in the last chapter of Tale of the Manticore. It opens with the awful discovery of three dead bodies. Some young followers of Hanavi, the blind maiden of hope, have been cornered and murdered in their dormitories. The next room holds a similar scene, but this time with the single murdered sister. Eredin successfully picks a lock, allowing the party entry to a cloister where the remaining sisters are found. The discovered sisters are not dead, but neither are they alive. Their goddess has cursed them, and now they are twisted things of undeath. Ghouls, forever hungry for flesh, never satiated. Gyrios manages to turn two of the creatures with his holy symbol, but the other two must be fought. There's a moment where things look like they might go very badly. Harl is paralyzed by one of the ghouls and taken out of the fight early on, but Gyrios steps up yet again, curing the dwarf, which allows him to rejoin the fight. Both ghouls are slain, and the party quickly shuts and locks the door, once again trapping the other two inside. Before leaving the way they came in, the party takes a few items of value from the kitchen and workrooms. However, they do not plan on continuing their journey to the Arlegoire just yet. Gyrios insists that they search the rest of the convent for survivors before they do. Chapter 34, Part 1, Day 41 Afternoon. Party status. Harl, 16 of 21 hit points. Eridine, 12 out of 12 hit points. Gyrios, 21 out of 21 hit points. Umura, 13 out of 13 hit points. Ursuleth, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Levitate. Gyrios has prayed for Purify Food and Water. The warm and fresh air outside, even standing in the neglected pen with several animal corpses about, was a welcome change from the sour, rotting smell of the convent's interior. A light wind had risen, which helped as well. I'm glad to be out of that place, commented Umura, looking at the stony edifice and tucking a loose strand of hair behind her ear. For now, at least, added Gyrios, shrugging slightly. Harl was stepping around one of the dead goats and heading towards the shed they had seen earlier. I wonder if this will be locked as well, he wondered aloud. The dwarf tried the handle, and the door swung open on protesting hinges. Hmm, Gyrios, 
Do you think it would be alright if we borrowed a few things from this place? What have you found? Asked Umora. Harl stuck his nose into the small shed and then half disappeared inside. They heard the noises of wooden items clattering about and then the dwarf's voice. Not too much that would be of interest to us. A wicker broom. A sack of oats. Ugh, I think it's gone bad. There's a coil of rope. We could use that. The rope came flying out the door and landed behind the dwarf as he continued to rummage. There are a couple of small leather bags. They look to be in decent shape. The bag sailed through the air and landed in a pile a little way from the rope. A bucket. A shovel. A wood axe. <laughs> Nothing else we would want. The words, wood axe, struck an unexpected and deeply sad chord in Umura's heart. She willed the feeling away. Harl re-emerged from the shed and shut the door, moved to his pile of findings and collected them. Better than nothing, he said, frowning slightly and tilting his head. Satisfied that there was nothing else of interest for them in the animal pen, the party exited through the side opposite the gate they had used on the way in. They had to climb under the slats of the fence, since there was no gate on this side. Once they were all clear, they walked along the outer wall that constituted the face of the convent. Not far ahead, they could see a pair of double doors made of heavy oiled pine filling an archway. The doors were partly open. Upon reaching them, they peered inside. There was a vestibule beyond. It appeared empty and no noises came from within. Regardless, Harl, Gyrios, and Eredin drew their weapons. Even Ursuleth drew her little blade. Umura, still holding the owl figurine, realized it had stopped radiating heat. She couldn't say when it had returned to its original state. Probably after they had locked away, the two ghouls, Gyrios, had turned. Speaking of Gyrios, the cleric was looking up and studying an inscription written into the stone of the arch. Umura looked at it too. It was written in Old Common, a language now dead for more than a millennium. It was different enough in their modern common tongue that it was practically a different language. Can either Gyrios or Umura read it? There's a very good chance our two spellcasters would be able to. It's just the kind of thing they would have studied in their youth. I'm not going to treat this as an official extra language or anything like that. But let's give them each a knowledge intelligence role. This challenge is not very hard, so I won't apply any penalties to the role. We'll start with Umura. She needs a 17 or lower on a d20. The roll, a nine. It says, above all, abandon not thine hope, for hope is the sunrise. She looked over at her companion who was nodding in agreement. I should think a proverb like that should appeal to a man like you, Gyrios, said Umura. He nodded. We of the faith have more things in common than indifference. Come, we must go inside. Perhaps one of the sisters has somehow survived. They passed under the arch and through the door in single file. As usual, Harl took the lead, with Gyrios behind him, followed by Umora, Eridin, and finally Ursuleth. Inside, a vestibule hallway ten foot wide and sixty feet long, with a single door at either end. They were so close to the westernmost door that Harl was trying the latch before the party had even fully entered the building. Locked. We already knew that, Harl said Umura, perhaps with a touch of unintended condescension. That door opens into the workroom where you found that rat earlier. It's firmly padlocked on the other side. Oh yes, that's right, of course, replied the dwarf. He brushed by the magic user and started walking down the eastern passage. Apart from their footfalls, the place was silent. The stone corridor ended in an iron-bound door that stood, as the main doors had, partly ajar. 
Harl hefted his axe, mostly to signal to the others to be ready for potential trouble ahead, and pushed on the door with his toe. It opened into more silence. Beyond, the party found themselves in the nave of a temple. Other than the cloister, this was the largest room they had seen in the convent. It measured 40 feet wide and ran over 100 feet long, from north to south. Details at the far end were hard to make out, for the light within was dim, although they could see that there was an altar at the other end, and then the wall behind it curved slightly to describe a rounded apse. The room seemed devoid of occupants. Nothing moved, except for a light tapestry of white and silver thread depicting the goddess Hanavi. It hung in the center of the west wall, rippling slightly in a mild breeze allowed by slit windows similar to those found in the other parts of the convent. That same breeze carried with it a familiar smell of rotting meat. The party frowned at each other and advanced, maintaining the previous marching order. Instead of flagstone, the temple floor was made of sanded and varnished pine. It creaked as they made their way across the room, passing short pews also of pine. Fully occupied, the room could have held a small congregation of thirty. I think our maths must have been wrong, or we missed something, said Umura softly. She needn't have whispered. The creaking boards would have announced their presence had anyone been listening. I only counted nine beds earlier. I don't think we missed anything, Umura, replied Gyrios. Monasteries and convents often feature a temple that can hold larger gatherings for high holidays and special ceremonies. But that would mean... Harl trailed off. Indeed, Master Dwarf. There must be some community not too far from here. My guess is that if we followed that river south, we would find a village, a town, maybe a city. Yes, of course, agreed Umura, with something hopeful in her voice. I wonder. Gyrios interrupted her before she could finish her sentence. Look here and here, do you see? These benches near the front have been used far more than the others. This is where the sisters sat when they held their routine prayers. I would wager that. Now it was Gyrios who was cut off, this time by Harl. Shh, he said, holding up his left hand to signal a halt. Look. Hi, I'm Tom, and I want to tell you about Tales of Mystara, a podcast that mixes storytelling with old school pen and paper games. Tales of Mystara is a D&D game, but without players or a dungeon master. There is only me, the rules, and the dice. Join me on your Apple, Google, or Amazon podcast app, or talesofmistara.podbean.com as I tell my story, where nothing is precious, no one is safe from the roll of the dice. Dramatis Personae, Sav Merriman. Anyone who knew of Sav Merriman, and there were very few who really knew him, would have described him as solitary, quiet, a little odd, and rather tall. They would have been surprised to know just how tall he really was. Sav was nearly six foot four, though somehow he did not cut an especially imposing figure. He tended to slouch, to minimize his presence in public, and generally came across as passive and shy. Lanky, but not especially thin, he had a bony frame that belied considerable strength. He wore his long, straight black hair loose much of the time, even though it tended to hang in his face while he worked. Sav was employed as a royal shipping clerk and representative of Emperor Galistan at the harbor. He had been for the past twenty of his forty years while living in a small, dark loft above the warehouse in which he worked, never far from the sounds of the lapping waves and the smell of algae, salt, and fish. He was born in the kingdom of Koth, miles away and overseas. 
when the emperor there, a narcissistic tyrant whose cruelty was only matched by his wealth and ambition, decided to expand his borders, he sent explorers in all directions. Some never returned. Others returned broken or haunted by what they had seen in the outside world. Of those who did come back, many returned with empty holds, but a few discovered something worth claiming. Sav Meriman's grandfather had crewed on one of these latter vessels. After numerous adventures, they returned bearing strange treasures and even stranger tales. One of their final discoveries had been a foreign shore that provided not only enough resources to sustain a settlement, but an electrum mine controlled by some local inhabitants that had been quickly and easily subjugated. Although his grandfather had returned to live out his retirement in comfort among the rest of the new aristocracy in Koth's capital city of Lethwin, the foreign settlement grew and became a fort, then a small fortified city. They called the place New Lethwin. It might have continued to grow, but plans to expand evaporated when the men of New Lethwin discovered that the mountains to the north were part of a near impassable range, and, more immediately, when the emperor who had started it all suddenly took ill and died to be replaced by his milder brother. The first twenty years of Sov's life had been spent on Kothic soil. It had been so long that Sov often reflected that his memories of the place did not feel real. They were more like still images, paintings, in his imagination. He would never have guessed that he would end up living in a foreign land, working as a shipping clerk, no less, counting electrum bars and barrels of salted cod for the emperor back home. Of course, he hadn't been given much choice. If it were not for his family connections, he probably would have wasted away years ago in the emperor's dungeons after what he had done. Well, it was his fault for getting caught, wasn't it? No, he was fortunate. Well, anyone else would have thought so. Sav Merriman knew. It was something beyond luck that protected him. Something much, much deeper. Part 2. Day 41. Afternoon. Party status. The party status is unchanged. What Harl had taken to be a rug and runner under the altar and leading to a slim single door was not that at all. Neither was the altar, a masterwork featuring four pillars sculpted to resemble robed women made of richly veined marble, as the dwarf had originally perceived. Near the apse, passing the pews to either side, his light vision clarified, and eventually he was able to make out the unsettling details. The altar was not made of marble, but white stone. When he was close enough, he could see that the top was no longer white at all. Giriosa's ragged breathing behind him told Harl that the cleric had seen it too. The altar top was covered in dried blood. It had run down the pillars, clinging to the curves of their female forms, and pooled at the base. It was this pool that Harl had originally taken for a rug, for it made a large and perfect circle beneath the altar. As for what he had taken to be a carpet runner, it was a smeared trail of dried blood from whatever or whoever had been killed here and dragged from the room. Given what they had seen earlier that day, Harl wasn't holding out much hope that the sacrifice had been a goat. There was a lot of blood. A lot. It led to the small door nearby, which Harl noted was open. Harl? It was Umura's voice. She had seen it too. Hush! Harl whispered back. He indicated the open doorway meaningfully with the head of his battle axe. The space beyond was inky darkness. As they neared the end of the nave, they spread out. 
Aerodine quickly sheathed her sword and took Ursulith quietly by the arm, leading her away to stand behind the frontmost pew. The two of them crouched behind it while the rogue unshouldered her short bow and knocked an arrow to it. While Aerodine covered the open door, Gyrios moved beside it and readied his flail. If anything came through it, he would be prepared. Umura continued into the apse, where she studied the altar. Behind it, she found a large silver water pitcher. It stood up to her knee and, being full, looked very heavy. It would probably require two priestesses to lift. She suddenly realized that the vessel held holy water. Thinking of the ghouls they had faced earlier, she bent down and filled her two empty vials. Harl assumed she was taking cover, as had Eridine and Ursulith. He tried not to think about how he had been paralyzed and made completely helpless in the last battle, and walked through the door. It took a moment for his dark vision to adjust. When it did, his weapon lowered, and his shoulders slumped. A shudder ran through his whole body. All of you, most of all Ursulith, stay back, the others heard him say from just beyond the doorway. I don't want you seeing this. Harl was standing in a private dormitory. The smell of rot here was concentrated and powerful, much stronger than it had been in the adjacent temple. This room was 20 feet wide and 40 feet long. It held a small single bed and a paper-strewn desk. There was a window on the north wall, but it was shuttered and daylight barely managed to enter. Beside the window, a bookshelf ran from floor to ceiling. It was filled with tomes of all sizes. Various scrolls and curios occupied the same shelves. The wide path of smeared blood ran beneath his feet and directly across to the opposite side of the room and yet another archway. The chamber beyond was the High Priestess's private chapel, though Harl did not yet know that and would never see it. The archway was flanked by two tall decorative caryatid columns. These were pillars carved in the shape of women. Of course, they were, like all other images of the female form in the convent, made to look like Hanavi, the blind maiden of hope. Unlike the others, these figures were nudes. Lashed between the caryatids, ankle to ankle, and wrist to neck was the High Priestess. She was exposed, with her formerly white robe slit straight down the middle. Her head was bent forward, so mercifully, Harl could not see her face. Between the caryatids, she made a human X. Her abdomen was an empty, gaping cavity from which spilled the whitish gray rope of her entrails. Beneath and in front of her, they had been shaped into a strange pattern. No flies buzzed in the room. There was nothing of life here at all. Everything was still. Worked into the stone above the chapel arch so that it served almost as a caption for the horrific display below was the following inscription. The body's purity is a blessing. Guard it well. Harl backed slowly out of the room, turned to his companions, tried to say something, and vomited. Seven days ago, day 34. The water was choppy. It lapped up over the strakes and into the bilge of the little fishing boat where it pooled at their feet. They had rowed for almost two days straight following the coast. 
He would have liked to have started this journey a day earlier, but a terrible storm had kept all vessels to harbor, and he had been forced to wait. The little fishing skiff belonged to old Coley, a hoary-bearded fisherman with skin like boiled leather. Coley's son, Brill, manned the oars most of the time. Brill was no longer a young man, but he had a strong back and could pull at the oars for hours at a time without needing a rest. His father took a turn whenever he became exhausted. Sov did not help to row. When they arrived, Sov and old Coley stepped ashore while Brill held the vessel steady by a cleat on the bow. They had agreed on a sum of 12 gold coins for the ride. Brill, at least, had certainly worked for it. Sov pulled out his heavy pack and dropped it on the sandy shore, leaving the other man to wait awkwardly with his hand held out like a beggar. Come on now, Sov, as, as we agreed, said the fisherman. No questions from me and 12 sovereigns from you. Sov continued to ignore him, taking a halberd of dark mail from his pack and pulling it over his head with his back turned to the older man. As we agreed, stammered old Coley, beginning to sound uncomfortable now. Sov silently went about his business, going back to his pack and pulling forth a straight-handled mace that ended in a smooth, lozenge-shaped head. If you don't death, called Brill from the water's edge, my father asked you a question. The other man had one hand on the cleat, the other gesticulated in the air. Sov faced them with an expression just as placid as the perfect sky above them. Twelve good gold coins, said the son uselessly. The elder fisherman looked at his still outstretched hand and then back up at Sov. There's a good man, <laughs> he said, breaking into an ugly gap-toothed grin. I thought you might have been of a mind to try and alter our bargain. I am of such mind, said Sov. Old Coley had just enough time to crane his neck forward and make a face of comically stupid outrage, complete with pronounced overbite, when Sov raised his left hand and willed both men to freeze where they stood. And so they did. Just as he had done to the high priestess of Hanavi, Sov claimed from these two men their freedom of movement. They stood there as statues, and, as he approached the water, Sov casually pushed over the old fisherman. Unable to move at all, Coley fell to the sand with a thud. The smallest of whimpers escaped his still lips. Sov kicked him onto his front and brought the ball of his mace down hard on the back of his head. There was a wet crunch, and the whimpering stopped. Sov kept walking, wading into the water. When he reached Brill, he casually tipped him over, backward. There was a splash, and then a gurgling sound as water filled the man's open mouth and nostrils. Sov took hold of the cleat and dragged the skiff up onto the bank, right over the body of old Coley and into a nearby copse of trees, as a reward for delivering the Maidens of Hope, his god, Enkanthra, the Lord of Entropy, and king of the maggots had given him a gift. This was an addition to the vision he was now acting upon. This was something extra, a boon. It was a word of power. Sob spoke it aloud. Dead Mina. Father and son fishermen rose up where they had been standing before. The elder from the sands, with his skull stove in and the idiot expression still upon his broken face. The thing that had once been called Brill rose from the water drowned and gouting seawater from its open mouth. Follow, said Sov to his new servants. The zombies followed. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. 
If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, please consider spreading the word on social media or leaving a review on the podcatcher of your choice. My sincere gratitude to everyone who has tweeted about the show, retweeted new episode alerts, or has left a rating or review. These things really make a difference by helping the show to reach a wider audience. As you know, I like to read one of these great reviews at the end of every episode. This one is by Haas Nugget. Haas Nugget writes, I recently was recommended this podcast, and I've been hooked since. Perfect mix of old-school D&D and narrative drama. The narrator and DM of this podcast does an amazing job of immersing the listener into the characters and setting of this gritty, dangerous world. I appreciate your taking the time to write that, Haas Nugget. I'm so happy to hear that you find the world of Merith immersive. If there's one thing I really strive for, it's exactly that. Thanks to the voice actors who bring so much to this story, playing both old Coley and his son, Brill, I'm happy to introduce Sid, my amigo in Arizona. Once again, in the role of Sav Marimon is Russ of YumDM.com. Russ also co-wrote Sav's backstory with me. Thanks to both Russ and Sid for their contributions. You can find me on the usual socials, Twitter at Manticore Tale and Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. Email works too. My address is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue next time on Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hey, Scales, is this thing on? Yeah? Okay. Hello, I'm Asher Flinhart, and if you're hearing this, that means you can listen to the World of World of Your podcast. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. The show is me, my five friends, Scales and Plaque the Created, OJ the Koboloi, Rhodes the Stone Eidolon, and Ori the Moon Elf. We play a free indie TTRPG called Wildervere, run by the people who write the game and their friends. Watch us travel the magical city-states of our cozy, friendly, and wild world, learning new skills, and enjoying a lot of new adventures in a Saturday morning kind of style. We release every other Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Twitter at Wildervere, or on a Discord server you can find at worldofwildervere.card.com. Thank you so much for listening to our travels. Rose is going to flake when we, he hears we have clout? Whatever he called it. Bye-bye! Skills, you can... You can stop now. What do you mean OJ's gone?